everybody. This is Nick Fletcher from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University. Uh, and this is the first episode of 2024 interview with the PD Pod. And I am incredibly excited to bring you this episode. My guest today is Mr. Manoj Ramachandran, who is a truly uh, unbelievable person. Um, he is a consultant orthopedic surgeon in pediatric and young adult orthopedics and trauma at the at Bart's Health. Um, he's based at the Royal London and Bart's in the London Children's Hospital in the UK. He is uh, the chairman of his department. But he's uh, really sort of unique in our world of children's orthopedics because of his uh, multiple ventures in the entrepreneurial world, especially as it pertains to AI and large language models. He was a co-founder of Viz AI, which we will get into quite a bit during the podcast, but essentially gives providers and hospital systems the ability to uh, immediately diagnose strokes and take images and scans of patients with strokes and put them at the top of the heap so that they get read quickly and patients can be treated uh, quickly. And uh, currently, they are diagnosing a stroke every 13 seconds, and they've expanded this to 12 other areas, including hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, PE, and others. He has subsequently founded a new company with his brother, uh, who is a radiologist, uh, and this company is called Half Loop and looks at sort of revolutionizing the way in which uh, patient information is stored, particularly as it pertains to things such as medical implants and, and whatnot. Manoj is really leading a healthcare revolution within our field and helping so many of us understand how to use this new emerging technology as a truly useful tool, but also understanding how it may change our practice over the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years. Um, and he's incredibly engaging to talk to. I know that you'll enjoy this a lot. I think that this really brings up so many new questions, but Please, please enjoy this wide-ranging, uh, very novel discussion with Manoj Ramachandran. So, uh, Manoj, thank you so much for being willing to do this. I've been looking forward to this for a while as a little bit of background. Um, you and I didn't know each other like two months ago, and then we met at IPOS, and I think it's been a tremendous uh, time getting, getting to know you, talking to you, and I think your, your story is, is fascinating. I'm going to start with a... Uh, with a question that is a little bit blunt, but how old are you? I'm 51. So oh, you're 51. That's right. You're older than me. I'm 45. It's okay. it's remarkable looking at what you uh, have accomplished in 51 years. I mean, looking looking through your CV and your uh, your online presence, which most of us don't have, but you've got a pretty big one, as we'll get to. Thanks. It's pretty remarkable. So uh, uh, it's really neat. But thanks for being here today. No, thanks for having me. It's, it's fantastic. So can you tell me, because we, we've talked a bit typically later in the evening at IPOS uh, and after the harm study group. So uh, some parts are a little bit fresher than others in my mind. But um, tell me a little bit about your upbringing. I know that you've got a brother who's a physician. Obviously, that plays a big role in your life. But um, did you grow up in a family of doctors? What was your upbringing like? Yeah, so I, I was born in, in India, in, in the south of India, a place called Kerala. Uh, so India is like 50 states. Kerala is the smallest, you know, it's a population of 1.4 billion and Kerala is 60 odd million, which is still the size of, of England. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's the smallest state. Um, so, I, you know, I lived around different parts of India until I was 12. My dad worked for a bank. So there's no one in my family who's uh, a physician or medical. Um, and he worked in a bank and every four years he was sent to a different part of India. So we moved from 
Kerala, we moved to places like Mumbai um, and Chennai and Bangalore. And when I was 12, he was sent to London for four years to the branch of the bank here. Um, and then by the time I got to 16, he decided, look, we've been moving around too much. Um, our education is important. My brother's four years younger than me, so he was 12 at the time. And there's only two of us. And he said, look, we're going to stay on here. So he, he left the bank. We, we, we stayed here. So I basically grew up in, in London. Um, I went to medical school in London and then spent time in Oxford uh, and did most of my training in surgery. So the way we train in the UK, you do uh, two, three years. You do residency, uh, sorry, your internship, which we call uh, a house officer year or foundation year, and that's a year long. You do a bit of everything. Then you do, and I did that in, in, in London primarily. Then you do three years of basic training where you do all aspects of surgery. Um, including orthopedics, but you know, we do plastics. I even spent some time in intensive care. But you're essentially learning the practice of surgery and looking after ill patients. And then you sit your exam to become a surgeon, a basic surgeon. And then you enter a training program, which would be the equivalent for a residency. And so you choose your specialty. So I went into orthopedics, um, and that was, again, in around London. And that's a six-year program all across London, but then your last year uh, or a year and a half is a fellowship. So I did fellowships in Sydney. So by that time, I decided I wanted to do paediatric orthopedics. I did a year in Sydney and uh, uh, six months in LA and then came back and started as, a, as an attending. So this was end of 2006, beginning of 2007. And I started in one part of London, but six months later, I moved to the centre of London to a, to a much bigger, bigger hospital. And I've been there ever since. So this is my 17th or 18th year there. So that's my practice. So paediatric orthopedics, but I don't do spine. We do, in, in the UK, the spine, surgeons do spine, whether that's adult or children. So the peds, people do everything else. And my practice is mainly in the, in the lower limbs, so hips, knees, foot and ankle sports. And then I've been the head of my department for a while. So we're, we're faculty, it's called the Royal London Hospitals in the centre of London. Um, it's actually five hospitals put together. It's the largest group of hospitals in the in UK and Europe. And there's 55 on faculty, but only four and a half paediatric orthopedic. So we've got a children's hospital within a massive set of hospitals. Oh, wow. Okay. And, but you're the chair of just the pediatric division or of the whole thing? Pediatric. Okay. Wow. The chair of the whole thing. Yeah. So, yeah. That's a different thing. That's just management. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I'm curious, uh, going back to sort of the upbringing part, you know, with a with a father who was in something completely separate from medicine, what was the the impetus for you to pursue a career in medicine? You were ahead of your brother, so you weren't following in his tracks. Was this something that just came to you early on as you wanted to help people, or or, or what sort of got you along that? that so I had a small um, ventricular septal defect, a VSD, when I was born, and I remember going to a cardiologist annually for a, for an echo and a checkup. So I, I remember that. Uh, and then when I came to England and I started studying, I mean, I, I was good at science. And I think, to be really honest, it was the the easier, it's the easy option. You're good at sciences. You know, there's a career pathway. And then I think ER came out and I watched George Clooney and I said, that's... I want to be that guy, right? Exactly. I totally get it. We all did. We all did. So that's, and you don't realize what you're letting yourself into. But then when I got them, I'm like, okay. I do want to help people. And I do enjoy, I enjoy the science of it, but actually it's the practice of it. That's that's more interesting. Um, so it's completely, it's serendipitous. No planned, 
you know, pathway into this. It just came. And, and usually it's, it's like everything. You, why do you choose anything that you do? It's usually circumstances, occasional, random meets, meetups with people you think, oh, they're quite inspiring. And that's, I think that's how I ended up here. I was going to ask you, I mean, were there, were there mentors that you found early on in medicine who helped shepherd you through? Because if you didn't have any background, then you really are just sort of ch- chasing George Clooney as your only mentor into medicine. <laughs> no, so I think, I think I remember being in ER after I qualified and watching, and I was in Oxford watching orthopedic surgeons come down and do something and the patient would go home. While everything else, you know, people just, it, it, there didn't seem to be a solution. It was all problems uh, and chronic problems. So I think it, I can't say specific people, but specific so groups of people who are inspiring. Like, okay, I can completely see that you can transform someone pretty much, you know, instantly by by intervening. I really can't do my training. I can't pick out one. I was interested in everything, but I can't pick out one person as a mentor, to be really, really honest. There are lots of people who have influenced me, but not one person who guided my sort of decision-making. It was completely decision by default. You know, you sort of think, this is what I like, this is what I don't like. Well, it's funny, you talked about the sort of the instantaneous gratitude of fixing a problem, and you strike me as somebody who who likes that. That's, you know, that's, the, the instantaneous feedback of some sort of new bit of information or fixing a problem or whatnot. So I'm sure that sort of stuck with you, but it's interesting to think of your brother because you guys have been in, in, you know, obviously not just uh, siblings, but business partners for a long time. And my father was a radiologist. Very recently. So we've, we've been doing business things alongside each other for a long time, but it's only a year and a half that we started working together on something. I got you. Well, but you guys have both been, yeah, like you said, side by side. But so my dad was a radiologist and I couldn't have had less interest in, you know, pure radiology. My my grandfather was a radiologist. They were like holding a spot for me in little Newport, Rhode Island. Um, And you and your brother have probably somewhat similar interests in terms of like solving problems quickly. And but yet you've taken very different career paths. What was there? Was did he look to you for sort of mentorship? Along that route to medicine, so, I mean, what was the relationship there? Yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't speak for him completely, but I do know that he chose medicine because he pretty much said that you're doing this anyway, and you've got all the books. And <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't think, in a similar way, he didn't have any sort of impetus or spark to choose that career. But as I became more interested in surgery, he was pretty convinced that he didn't want to do that. He's not that kind of person, you know. He wouldn't want to. I haven't said that, actually, I haven't said that. He's become an interventional radiologist. So he okay. intervened, but I don't think he wants to do sort of large surgeries or, or deal with that whole sort of dynamic around families and patients, et cetera. So I think he's different. And he was definitely more geeky than I was. He was he was definitely the nerd. He, he won't mind me saying that at all. So he was the person who first learned to code and, um, you know, with MS-DOS, like right at the beginning. And Sinclair ZX Spectrums and Commodore Amiga. So right at the beginning of computing. His best friend at school was a guy called Demis Hassabis. And Demis Hassabis, some people might have heard of, he he left school, he left our school when he was 16, went to Cambridge, left Cambridge at 18, set up a software company which he sold for millions by the time he was 21, then set up a company called DeepMind, which Google bought for a billion. And DeepMind is the AI of Google, right? So that's their entire Wow. AI based and I don't know if it's something in the water where we grew up but I remember that that kid and he was super super bright and they used to just hang around and code together and so there must have been something some sort of influence that pushed him that way 
to be in front of computers, you know, radiology specifically. Yeah. Compared to me wanting to just get out and do things. I was going to ask, I mean, because you guys both have pursued a career that's technology-based that we're coding as a big portion of it. Um, were you similar as a kid in, in at least, like, did you get into coding or was that something that came a lot later? Do you even know how to code? Like, what were you like as a kid? I'm not really a coder. I'm not okay. Really a coder. You see the, the value of coding and the sort of basic principles of what you could, could use it for or not use it for. But I've never really learned to code. Or I've learned to code and then given up when the next thing comes along because coding is not something, you know, that's static. It's languages are changing. Things are moving fast. To be a really good coder, you know, my brother's definitely a lot better. He still wouldn't call himself a sort of coder, coder, but he understands the languages a lot better than I do. But he definitely learned to code more than I did. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to sort of jump forward because you, you painted a nice picture of sort of how you got to uh, to be a children's orthopedist. You you said that you did your time in uh, out in LA. That was that with Dave Skaggs and Vern Tolo and that group. Vern Tolo, yeah, at the time. Yeah. At, at that time, were you seeing anything? outside of medicine as a potential future alternative or supplement um, to what you were going to do? Or was the plan at that point when you got done to just be a children's orthopedist and take care of kids? By that time, by the time I got to my fellowship, I was definitely interested in education. I've written a few books. I've written 18 books, which yeah. is a bit crazy. Uh, but the first book I ever wrote was when I sat my surgical exams at the end of our basic training. It's called the MRCS or Membership of the Royal College of Surgeons. We were the first ever year to sit this new exam, and there were no books. So I, after I passed the exam, I said, oh, hang on, I'm going to put all my notes together and make this into a book for the people you know, who are coming up after me. And that was the first book I published. And that's still, if I, you know, I'm going to Singapore to teach on a course, and that, course, that book is still used by medical students and trainee surgeons around the world. So that's, you know, that's one of my, that's the start of thinking you can, convert something, some knowledge into something else other than your daily practice. So by the time I got a fellowship, I was definitely interested in education, running courses, but nothing more than that. I hadn't really seen beyond it. In my fellowships, and you know, I did the year I did in Sydney was actually much more much more influential. So David Little, I don't know if you've met him. Oh yeah. And he's I mean he was I'd put him as one of my mentors definitely. We we just talked about a bunch of stuff about in research, education, but innovation, you know, how do you change the way we practice? How do you do new things? And I was pretty much really into, you know, writing papers, looking at results, looking at patient outcomes. But I then started thinking about well, where are all these technologies, not just uh, devices, but also drugs, digital, all these things. Are, that's when I first started getting into it and thinking what's coming next. And by the time I got back and started my attending, period, I really started thinking about devices and then I got into digital after. But so that was a sort of transition period where I learned to do enough to be comfortable in my practice and then started thinking, what can I do beyond that? I was going to ask you about that. I mean, I think that's, that's fascinating. And by the way, I, I found your books. Uh, I found, well, I found a number of your books, your orthopedic trauma book. Um, it's, it's remarkable. I've, I've written chapters for books, but I mean, it's a huge undertaking, but to do that essentially as a new, either a new faculty or a trainee is it's pretty remarkable. That's a that's a, a lot of work, um, and I'm, I can't imagine people were knocking down your door to get that, as opposed to like, you know, the giants in the field who who have people coming to them saying, "Hey, will you you know 
edit this textbook, write this textbook to, to have the, have the motivation to put your notes together, find a publisher, put it together in a meaningful way is, is pretty remarkable. But, you know, I think the question that I had was when you come out there, there is a definitely a learning period where you go from being in the operating room with Vern Tolo or, or Dave Skaggs and they're so talented and they make everything that you do seem easy. And then yep. you go to being fresh, yep. you know, and, and, and then on top of that, um, having to do it, you know, numerous times and iteratively get better every time, but then having an, an interest outside that's as time consuming as some of the stuff that you were thinking about, how did you balance that? And at what point did you sort of say, I need to make sure that I balance this so that I can learn uh, and, and stay proficient in both areas? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when I came back, my next sort of mentor, as it were, was a colleague that I joined, Mark Patterson. He's a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. Unfortunately, he passed away um, a few years ago. But he was uh, cerebral palsy and neuromuscular. That was his interest. And I joined him, and he was a senior person in our department. And definitely, when you're finding your way, making your mistakes, you know, I was very fortunate to join a department where someone is always there. Uh, if you're stuck, if you're lost, if you're unsure, someone will be there with you. And that, I think not many people are, I think it's more common now, but even, you know, 15, 20 years ago, joining a place where there's always someone around to come and scrub in if you're worried or you need some help, that wasn't very common. So I definitely was very fortunate to join a group that were collegiate, you know, supportive and hands-on. And that's, that's, I just landed on my feet. So definitely my first few years of, so from 2006 to 2009, 10, when I was just getting into practice and thinking and making all the mistakes that you make, I definitely had a big support group around me. And then, and around that time, I started, I was thinking about what am I going to do outside of education? And then opportunities started to pop up. So that's, yeah, you're right. You have to have, it's a bit like, how can you do any of this without having a base at home? And my wife, Jo, uh, is incredible and none of this could ever happen without having a stable base that you start from so you have that stable base at home you've got to have a stable base at work and anything you do around that on top of that comes from that it can't exist without it yeah absolutely i i couldn't couldn't agree more because i think that those two things having a you know partners who care for you and especially a spouse who cares for you really is is the foundation for what everything is built off of it's so hard to do this alone Talk to me about, you, you mentioned the opportunities came, and it's interesting how opportunities come. And I think, <clears throat> you know, when I look at my own career, a lot of the opportunities that I've had, you don't necessarily recognize right away. Sometimes you do. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to get asked uh, to participate in the harm study group. You've, we actually uh, were at a meeting recently, and that was something that was known. But then I've spoken before a lot of the research that I've done has been on uh, enhanced recovery after surgery protocols for spine surgery. And it literally just happened to do with the fact that the guy who I joined had been doing this for a while and had done something that nobody else in the world had done. Right. And he just hadn't published on it. And so I was able to take that, but that was a unknown opportunity that I just sort of walked into. And okay. I think they're so different and it's hard early on to see, is this an opportunity that's worth pursuing? And, and so how did you do that at the beginning? Yeah. And again, you know, this is, the retrospective scope, so you can look yeah. back and see, you know, I did this, I followed by that, followed, but all of it is just trial and error. And so I'd say, you know, my other than my practice, I was into education, I was into research, I was publishing a lot, and I was thinking, perhaps I'll go down the real professorial academic route, which in the UK means slowing down your clinical practice. 
and spending 60 to 80% of your time publishing, getting grants, et cetera, and building a research team. I was going down that route and thinking, is this what I really want to do? And do I want to give up my clinical practice? Now, there are opportunities everywhere. We're fortunate to be in London where there's always stuff happening. And at that time, in the late 2000s, we hadn't really got into digital. I mean, the digital was starting to take off, but hadn't really got going. But we were talking a lot about device trials, new tech, new surgical techniques with, uh, with new devices. And I started learning how to do hip arthroscopy. And at that time, I had a very small adult hip practice, uh, only for preservation surgery, you know, not joint replacement and arthroplasty. Uh, and a colleague of mine and I learned together how to do hip arthroscopy. He said, look, there's no way I'm going to try this on a 15-year-old for the first time. There's no way you're going to do this for the first time on a 30-year-old. So let's start to operate together. So we taught each other and we taught ourselves. So we'd go off on courses, go to cadaveric sessions, we'd visit the best hip arthroscopists in the world. And, and I guess the first opportunity arrived when during that process. I went to Switzerland to visit a chap called Michael Leunig. He's actually the son-in-law of Gans. Gans, yeah. So I was learning parastable osteotomies, but also um, trying to work out how to do hip arthroscopy. I got to see Michael Leunig in Zurich on a day that he was uh, doing some surgical dislocations, you know, hip-preserving. And he said, look, I've got a guy coming from um, Palo Alto who's got a new company that make, that does hip arthroscopy. You're, you're learning hip arthroscopy, right? I said, yeah, that's, I mean, I'm in the process of learning it. So, well, I think he's coming to see me to talk about it, but I've never done one. Uh, so maybe you should talk to him. So this guy turns up who's a serial entrepreneur. His name's Julian Nikolchev. He'd taken uh, two companies to an IPO previously in radiology and in gynecology. And he was getting into orthopedics and he was starting a new device company looking at hip arthroscopy and devices for hip arthroscopy. So we started chatting, decided to have a late night session like we did after IPOS. And we sat and talked talk, and essentially started drawing out devices that we could build. And then I left her. I thought, okay, you know, really nice guy. I'll never hear from him again. And then literally a week later, he constantly said, look, okay, this is what we're going to do. You're going to come in. <laughs> uh, and it, it was interesting because, you know, there, there are all these conversations you have. And we have it all the time with reps from med device companies, with, uh, you know, you go to conferences, you meet people, and you think about ideas. And often you give away your ideas, right? And then you might never hear again, or further down the line, you might think, oh, someone's using that in that device. I remember talking to that company about that modification. Or, and, and that's how you know, surgeries generally tend to work. But here, you really did come back and say, look, we've got two, three people, a few people in the company. Um, I'd like you to join us on this journey where we're going to make these devices. So we started working together, and I'd fly out there. We'd start building devices, and we went through four or five rounds of funding and eventually sold that company. It's called Pivot Medical. We sold it to Stryker in 2013. And in, in that process, I learned about ide ideation, prototyping. He was part of the Stanford Biodesign program. So we learned about taking ideas from nothing through proof of concept to market, to financing, to everything. So that was an amazing journey, just completely because there was an opportunity and, you know, mainly driven by him. And I'd say Julian was one of my other mentors outside of medicine. I've watched Julian passed away very recently, uh, which is very sad, he had a heart attack completely out of the blue. Um, still very young. But he was he was a complete a pivotal point in my life where I realized that we had all these ideas and, and an opportunity to do things, but there's no access to 
to either manufacturing or financing or a, a company building strategy. There's just, we wouldn't know how to do it. We had to team up with someone, but he taught me all about that. So that was my first sort of, okay, we can take something, we can build it, we can fund it, and then we can you know, take it out to market. So that was completely serendipitous, but the start of my, I could do something a bit bigger than just running courses or writing books or writing papers. Yeah, it's an unbelievable story. It, and it brings up a lot of questions. You know, one of the things that is uh, touted as a huge advantage of working where I work at Emory yeah. is that we have uh, the CDC and we have Georgia Tech, which is a, you know, a worldly, world-renowned research center with, you know, billions of dollars in biomedical funding. And one of the, I think one of the difficulties, at least from an orthopedic side, is that the city of Atlanta has not sort of leveraged that um, in orthopedics. There's actually a fair amount of biotechnology research and, and uh, innovation that's occurring outside of orthopedics. But you figure like of all the specialties, orthopedics should be at the forefront. But it's, I think one of the things that sticks out in the story that you talked about was the curiosity that sort of kept you going because you, you had no background. And, I, and the easiest default for all of us, me, me, you know, certainly me included, is that like I wake up in the morning, I go yeah. to the hospital, I take care of patients, I go home at night and like at nowhere in there do I interact with those people. So it really took, a, I mean, you were flying to Palo Alto to work on something totally separate from your clinical practice. And that's, yeah. that takes a lot of curiosity that you wanted to learn about this, that you wanted to improve. And the question that I'm sort of getting to at the end is now that you've done that, and you've obviously done this on your own, and we'll get into that a little bit uh, later. Um, but for somebody who just has an idea, how do you, what do you think the barrier to entry is? And, and how does somebody go about I've got this idea. Maybe I don't live in Atlanta. Maybe I don't live in the UK. I mean, it didn't really matter. You found somebody from Stanford, but how do you, how do you make that jump? So I think if you asked me this question 20 years ago, it's a completely different answer. Like there's oh, really? no anything and it's, it's luck whether you bump into the right person who guides you through that process. But I think now if you're that person who has that idea, there are many, many ways of finding people to work. So I really think it's about finding the right group of people to work with. Nothing I've ever done, I've ever done on my own. And if anything I've ever done on my own has failed miserably. <laughs> so on the right group of people to work with. You have surgery. You do a pretty good job of that. <laughs> no, even that. <laughs> even that. There's no way. You know, it's not, it's not a solo process at all. The next thing is finding the right resources to think, how do I build an idea? What What is a proof of concept look like? Then how do I validate it? Then how do I raise funding for it? Then how, all that you know, 20 years ago, there's just no way. You just have to feel your way around, and most of the time you hit a dead end. But now there are resources for all this stuff. There are still networks that are more successful than other networks, and if you get into that network, and then you can get your feelers out through the network, where you're much more likely to find the people, the resources, and then work out your strategy. But I think now you've that access there much more. And I'd say London was very similar. So I'll come to talk about the digital stuff in a second, but... London theoretically has everything, has world-class universities. It's got more than enough people power, but there wasn't any way of making anything happen 20 years ago. You know, everything was happening in, in Silicon Valley or other centers where there's a much more well-formed network. Um, but it's changed. And, and I think, you know, there are places, and the U.S. is classic. So somewhere like Atlanta is a classic place which could easily become the next big, and there are lots of next big Silicon Valleys from Austin to, I mean, there's loads. 
But it depends on the area that you're in and whether what you're interested in fits in with the people around you. So it might be great for biotech, but that's not necessarily what fits with you know, what you're interested in building. But I think what's changed now is you can go out and find those networks a bit more easily, but it does involve time outside of your normal working day. Yeah, so that's, yeah. that's the hard part, balancing that and having the, the freedom to, to operate outside of your clinical, because that takes time. Do, do you have any um, resources that you would offer to a young budding surgeon entrepreneur to say, like, if you wanted to find a network, this is how you might go about doing it? Yeah, I actually talked about it with, with Kevin Shea and others. about we should be we should be doing something at, at Posner EPOS because I, I think people have talked about it, but we've never formalized it. I think that's actually so it, the entire thing from ideation to all the way through to market. How do you do it? How do you build it? How do you really test a theory well before, you know, jumping, before thinking I'm going to do this properly? Uh, I think that, I mean, I've just learned it by hook or by crook, but but I, I think it's something that we can craft together. We sort of did a bit of it at iPost recently, yep. uh, but I think we should expand on that a lot more. It's not, uh, and particularly in this world that we're entering, which we'll probably talk about later, which is where we are with generative AI and what's coming there are multiple opportunities out there that you don't necessarily have to you know, even leave your, your desk at home to do. You can do it from anywhere. People are working remotely. Teams are decentralized and remote. You know, you can, you can do anything you want. So yeah. I think we should really be focusing on that now. But we should talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we will. I did want to ask a little bit more about the period where you started to get interested in this work outside of your clinical practice and how you dealt with giving up a little bit of a part of you. You know, it's funny. I, yeah. One of the challenges that we have with our medical students when they're looking at orthopedics in the U.S. at least is that they go through and they learn cardiac physiology and, and pulmonary physiology and pathology and all this. And they get like a core, they, they get a, a morning session on orthopedics. And yes. so when they go into orthopedics, they feel like they've forgotten everything or they're forgetting everything. They're leaving all of their medical school training behind. Yes. They don't carry a stethoscope and all that kind of stuff. And um, I think that there's probably a little bit of a sense of loss to some extent, the more you do outside of your work, that some of the training that you've put in may yes. not be going, uh, getting its full use. Did you have any issues with that? And how did you deal with that? So I, that already happened to me by the time I got to this point. <laughs> yeah. you know, already, our medical training and our surgical training is so broad. That by the time you said, I'm going to do orthopedics, you're giving up you know, 90% of everything you've learned to that point. Yep. And I think I, I, we go through probably a lot, in, in a similar way to you guys, but a lot faster uh, because we have to give it up. Um, you know, Even from my clinical year, preclinical to clinical years, you give up a lot of stuff. So you end up from being a scientist to to a clinician, to then a surgeon, and you just get focused on it. You guys do the same, uh, but I, I was used to that process. I, I sort of said, what, what, what can I, I can't do everything, you know, what I have to give up. In the same way in my clinical practice, when I started, I did everything. I did deformity, I did all kinds of things, so neuromuscular. But then again, you start working in a team and you hire more people in and they take some of that away. And it's, it's a sense of loss, but actually it's a sense of refinement. And saying this is what I'm happy doing, and I'm happy giving this up, um, and that's the only way you'll grow a team and function in your day-to-day -day practice, right? So I, I don't think that was ever a problem for me. So doing things outside didn't mean I was giving stuff up inside. I was already giving up stuff inside medicine anyway, and focusing down. Yeah, 
Well, I guess it probably has to do with the distribution of different areas within, I mean, you, you only have so much capacity and it just, you know, you're going to have different interests and, and one person may want to focus entirely on doing, you know, left hip preservation surgery, which is ultra, ultra specific. And you have, you know, a broader interest. So to you, you weren't losing anything. Yeah. Um, but it's also what, what makes you wake up in the morning and think, Oh, this is going to be a really interesting day. Yeah. Um, Definitely got to a point by the early. So by the time we got out of pivot, so, you know, 2013, I was like, my perfect day would be doing one different thing every day in a five-day week. So it could be a day of operating, could be a day of cl- uh, clinics, then a day of research, then a day of thinking about new ideas and a day of digital, or whatever. I-, I started to think like that, thinking if I did the same you know, five things in one day over five days, that probably wouldn't work. I need to focus on the thing that I'm doing for an extended period of time. So I started to think like that. And that was just me trying to organize my thoughts and my time so that it works. Because you, I, what I didn't want to do was do a lot of surgery all day and then end up doing the innovation stuff in the middle of the night. Yep. Just trying to so you want deep work five days a week in a different topic each day, basically, right. or a different approach. That's, yeah. how up, that's actually how I ended up sort of organizing my life. And yeah, I'm not doing any planning, but just how it's worked out. Were there any barriers that came up early on when you were sort of mixing your clinical care with your uh, entrepreneur work? Because, um, and again, it, it may be just systems based, but you know, in the U.S., productivity is such an important thing for the hospital that if I was like, "Hey, actually, I'm going to take two days off and I'm going to think about stuff one day," and yeah, yeah, yeah. Where right? you can have your twenty percent time. Yeah. Uh, so in the UK it works differently in that you're you give a certain number of hours to to the NHS, the National Health Service. So it's a public system. And that's 40 hours a week as a full-time job. Now, some people do that eight hours, five days a week, particularly if you're in non-surgical specialties. But most of us work three, sometimes two and a half, sometimes three and a half days. So a day of operating can take more than eight hours, right? So you're starting really early, finishing really late. So you can move your week around and condense it down. Now, what tends to happen at the time you're not there, people do other things. That could be research, education. Often it's private practice. But if you don't go down that route, you can use it for, for other things. So it doesn't conflict you in any way as long as you separate it and, and, and timetable it correctly. So I think that's different to you guys if, you've, if you're on faculty or staff and you're, you're there five days a week. Um, right. So, so you never sort of went on the private practice route so that you've always done I did it. I did it for a little while and, and hated it because <laughs> I like working in teams. And private practice in, in, in the UK is a very much a solo one man person, one, you know, you, you're literally running your front of house and back of house. There's no team around you. Yeah. And you're working on your own in private practice. Well, it, you know, in the NHS, you're, you've got an entire team and you're working, you know, together collectively. So it was a different, it wasn't for me. So I tried it. It wasn't for me. Gotcha. Yeah. Let's move on a little bit. So <clears throat> your was, was Viz AI your next venture after Pivot? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it was 2013 and London had really started to take off digitally and the area where my hospital in Royal London is is right next to an area called Silicon Roundabout because Google, Facebook, a bunch of people started setting up their headquarters there and a lot of tech talent got drawn in to this part of central East London. And so, you know, I'd be hanging around, you'd see all these people working out of cafes, <laughs> you know, coding, and like, okay, this stuff's taking off here. So I just used to go to the random so after work I'd pop into random meetups and gatherings where people would talk about ideas in healthcare or finance or anything. Just think about what's coming out of that. And then 
around that time, um, the flatmate of a resident of mine came to see me and said he was really interested in writing books um, because I'd written a few books. Uh, and by that point, I was, I was saying to him, look, we need to move on to new, new things beyond, beyond books. And we started talking. He ended up going to Stanford to do an MBA. And that's how Viz got started in, in 2015, 2016. He met a third person, a, uh, a guy who was a computer vision postdoc at Stanford, uh, who's working on taking any image and training an algorithm to automatically recognize every part of the image, Not, nothing in healthcare. And the three of us started working on initially the idea of taking ultrasound scans for the hip for d- development dysplasia and then training it to see all the angles and measure the graph angles, et cetera. And we published on it in 2016 and ended up winning a competition at Stanford and Viz took off from there. So we ended up, our first round of funding was uh, from Eric Schmidt, who'd just come off being the CEO of Google at the time. And he said, look, your algo for DDH, dysplasia, is very interesting, it's very exciting, but it's not urgent. It's important, but it's not urgent. No one needs to act on it immediately when you see that result. You know, in healthcare, we need to act on the only way someone will do something is if something needs to be done now. So we said, okay. So we went away and made a bunch of algorithms and stroke is what we ended up focusing on because it was so time sensitive. And this, this took off from there, which is another crazy sort of story and journey. Well, I've got time. I know you're up against it. I'd love to hear that. I like, cause I'm curious, you were a children's orthopedist. So stroke probably wasn't at the forefront of your mind. I mean, we don't yes. typically see it. And, so, and- Chris, uh, my colleague, who's not, who's not the CEO and co-founder, he was a neurosurgeon. So that was the closest, but we hadn't thought about stroke at all. Yeah. Uh, so how did that come about? Just going away and thinking about what conditions. So we thought about orthopedics and neurosurgery, and we started thinking what conditions, if, if you could automatically read a scan or an x-ray and put that result in front of someone, which conditions would you have to do something about now? And in orthopedics... There's hardly anything. So, because even if you look at polytrauma, really the the stuff that needs to be dealt with is the vascular and and brain stuff, right? Not orthopedics comes lower down the list. Compartment syndrome potentially, but that's not imaging heavy. A quadriquina potentially, but there's a still a clinical overlay. You know, just because you pick up a quadriquina on a scan doesn't mean you have to do something about it right now. There's a lot of clinical elements on top of that. Um, so we started looking around and looked at every disease process every system and worked out things like strokes, pulmonary embolism, large ones, aortic dissections. So we just started making a hit list and thinking, how can we build algos based on that? So it, it, it was more, a, we've got a technology that we can build, we've got the capability, but you know we don't know what to use it for. What should we focus on? And so it's not my primary of interest, but it's an interesting topic. And if you can solve or at least find some sort of solution to it, that's an amazing step change in treatment. So that's why we've ended up focusing on it. Yeah. And how's the technology sort of evolved since the company was originally founded and what challenges sort of came, came along the way? No, I'll tell you, so the first part was uh, building it, building an algorithm that works. So A, you had to get hold of hundreds of thousands of scans, CT scans of, of the brain. And we did that through research institutions, data repositories from all around the world. Then you had to manually, pretty much right at the beginning, annotate all of it and segment all of it. So you had to go through the scans and a radiologist or an intern had to draw every clot or bleed. 
Wow. Sequential images. And then you train your algorithm with it so it sees it. You, you focus only on that clot of bleed and tell it not to look at other things. And, you know, it could have a big tumor somewhere else, but that's not what you're trying to focus on. You're focusing on the vascular system, right? Then you've got to have a, a test set. So another set of images it's never seen that you've got to put it up against and then make sure the accuracy is good enough. At the, when we first started, the sensitivity specificity was in the sort of 80s, uh, which doesn't sound big, but actually that's where it needs to be because you don't want it, to, it can't be 100% accurate. Um, you know, you will have some false positives and false negatives. And then we had to go to regulation, and that was a big, big thing going through the FDA. They'd never done it before. Um, so so you same. did it in the U.S. first before the U.K.? Yeah. yeah. So by that point, we'd been funded by Eric Schmidt primarily, and Chris took the decision, that's it, I'm going to take some time off. You know, he's never come back. Because he'd taken some time out of training to go and do an MBA. He was supposed to come back and, and carry on in neurosurgery. But this was too big an opportunity. So... And then we're looking at markets of where we do it, and the F everywhere was tough because no one had ever done this before. But the FDA were definitely more open to to conversation and 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 a sort of bipartisan, bilateral, sorry, not bipartisan, bilateral way of thinking about how to solve this problem. So we literally had to show them how the algo works, that we're not trying to replace radiologists, that essentially we're taking an image, finds the clot or bleed for the stroke, and then sends that image to the person who makes a decision because it's not making a decision it's just putting it's prioritizing which scan needs to be seen first so that was a sort of nine-month process and then we got our de novo approval at the beginning of 2018 and that was a big step change because till then you know you're burning money people are giving you a lot of money uh, and you're spending millions going through regulation not knowing whether it even works no one's paying for any of it so then after getting that then it was actually setting up a system that works. So you have to set up a way of pulling out images from a CT scanner or an MRI scanner securely into a cloud. You then have to read it in a very secure cloud infrastructure, read it, get the right result, and then send the result to someone's device, which is iOS or Android. So you have to build a team that can do every element of that. You know, so just in those days, just having an iOS development team you know, costs a lot of money and it's tough to do it properly. And same with Android, et cetera. So, that took a while, but then because of that de novo uh, approval, it accelerated everything. It meant people took you seriously and, and you had something that works. And then uh, you know, I think our inflection points were getting that de novo, working with Medtronic because they became a sort of sales force. Uh, they knew that if strokes were picked up early, then they need to be treated. Uh, and if they need to be treated, then their devices might be used like stent retrievers. Um, so it was the impetus was for them to go and sell the software into into all the hospitals that they want to sell the devices into, and then after we started doing outcome work and then showing that patients got there faster to the right treatment, had the treatment and had great outcomes at three to six months post intervention, then we ended up getting a code from CMS, which is a new technology add-on payment code MTAP. So there was a reimbursement code associated with it. So every department that uses our software gets $1,080 for using our software on top of their stroke reimbursement. So there are many things. I mean, there are many other things that happened or didn't work out, but those are the three major things that accelerate. And I think, you know, I think your brother was involved at some point because Atlanta, like Emory was one of the first hospitals that, yeah. that we tested it in. And our first sort of serious advisor on our advisory board was a guy called Ron Naguero who's from Emory, uh, like a world-renowned 
you say that Atlanta's not well known. Atlanta's really well known. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't the stroke yeah. world he is? It's not an orthopedics. Oh, they're huge in stroke. Yeah. 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 He's, he's uh, the boss of stroke. So he, he was on advisory board early on. And one of our first tests ever in, in a live environment was in, in Emory. It was a Grady. So, you know, these sort of points really made a, a massive difference. And the stroke belt is in sort of southern uh, US, you know, so it's Georgia, Texas. There. So that's where we knew that we had to test it out because you can make an algorithm work in a lab or in research, but what testing in the real world, the real patients who come from all kinds of different backgrounds, you don't know until you put it out there. So, yeah, it's a... And then since then, we've had we've now got 12 FDA clearances, and the company's pretty big. You know, the last one was for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy on EKG, which is a completely different area, but still imaging-based, not necessarily DICOM images, but an EKG image. Um, but yeah, that's been a really crazy, crazy growth path. That's phenomenal. And and so uh, so many questions, but uh, I'll try to keep keep uh, them sort of simple. But first is as the guy who says, I don't code, who's a children's orthopedist yeah. and is living across the Atlantic Ocean from all this. What were what was your role? Because you spoke about having a partner who is a neurosurgeon, so at least he knows what the brain is sort of supposed to look like. What was your role in this versus you know, your, your partners. So even, you know, so even though he was a neurosurgeon, you still need an entire team. So first of all, you have to have a team that can do yeah. it. So when you're going through training an algorithm and annotating segmenting, you need a whole bunch of neuroradiologists or radiologists who can do that. And none of us were. So it's working with a massive disparate group of people. Then we're thinking about how to get it into a hospital. So the whole workflow, you know, building an algorithm is like the first starting point. It's then how do you get it into a hospital worker and I was the only one still working I was the one sitting around thinking you know if this came here how would we put it into the hospital how do we get into someone's hands why would they use it so it's all the sort of design thinking around it then I think about how to get it outside of the US into Europe UK there are many different I mean a lot of it was sort of strategic or clinical and thinking about where you're going to do it how you're going to build it um, but it was growing so fast that ultimately you're just helping Anyway, in a startup, you don't have a specific role. You don't say, I, my job is this. It's just my job is to do whatever needs to be done <laughs> in any yeah. area, whether it's sales, marketing, research, writing. You know, we were doing all kinds of things, applying, you know, publishing research on it, uh, going through regulation in different countries, thinking about how to get reimbursement in other countries. And we started building a European team. So we ended up building a, a team around 50 to 60 old people in Europe. I was part of that. So there were many, my, I had a generic sort of, I'll get my hands dirty with anything role, but I'd taken the decision that I'm not going to give up everything and go there and do it full time. Right. So you have to apportion that out and say, okay, this is my role. I'll do this, but this is what I can help with. And I'll, I'll go as far as I can with it. Uh, that's all you can do. Otherwise you have to give up everything. And then, and Chris and, and David, our CTO did all of that. So, yeah. you know, you have, again, it's, right group of people in a team and all doing their bit and some people will take a much more responsibility than others uh, i'm just happy to be part of that journey really. yeah i can only imagine i mean you know you probably remember like i do sort of the first some of the first big cases that you did i was it's actually interesting yesterday i saw my first pao back 14 years yeah. uh, uh later yeah, and he's now 28 my first kids that i operated on you know open reductions of hips and they're 18 and you're like wow you're makes like, you feel old. <laughs> <It's> old. <laughs> but I'm curious, 
Uh, but it's, it's really cool. I mean, I, you know, it was fun seeing uh, this patient yesterday and seeing that his hip still looks great at age 28. Um, do you remember sort of the first time that you heard about like, hey, we saved a life by oh, yeah. our algorithm picking up a stroke? I mean, there were many points. You, know, you remember, I'll tell you what some of the points. So the first time we heard that the FDA had approved it, I mean, it was a massive, it's like a company-wide global celebration. Uh, there was the first time it was tested and it actually worked that it picked up a stroke and sent it in a test environment. The first time it did it properly in, um, at Grady in a real patient. Grady was the first one. <laughs> wow. But Grady and Erlanger uh, were the two that were really going really early on. I mean, we remember all of these points. Then the economists came and covered. They actually went, they went to Erlanger and covered an entire case from beginning to end and showed that whole flow, and that's, you can watch it on, on YouTube. That was an amazing, watching, you know, just like from the other side of the world, watching this patient come with a massive, large vessel occlusion, just wake up, being completely normal and walking out, thinking, Jesus. And now we're picking up a stroke every 13 seconds. Somebody. Crazy. And that's crazy. That, you can't even, so it's gone past the point of individual moments to, this is just unbelievable. You know, I, I don't even know what to think about it anymore. It's, um, sometimes I go to the US and I'm going to, to a hospital to visit and realize that our software is there picking up aortic dissections and pulmonary emboli and all kinds of things. And it's, it's, very, it's a very strange feeling because there's one, you know, you, you operate on patients and you see them, as you said, like 16, 18 years down the line. It's amazing to see that. But then to know this stuff is sort of happening in the background that you were there at the start of it and now it's just flown and it's doing stuff every day without you having to do anything. That's, it's a different feeling and I don't know how to feel about it, but it's quite cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It's yeah. a, and, and, um, are, how, what's your involvement now? I mean, are you part of the Hokum team or you sort of divested yourself of no, 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 no. So, like a year and a bit ago, I stopped being part of it because it, okay. it got too big. Uh, B I started working on my next thing. So every five years or so, I think I need to do something else because that, that's, Chris and Chris has really run with it and done an amazing job, but you know it's like five hundred people working at the company, so I barely know who who works there anymore. <laughs> so you move no. on to the next thing. I'm definitely a sort of early ideas, going through all the pain of building and seeing if it works and getting it into you know a product. That's that's where I get the real buzz from. The implementation masochist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So talk to me about Half Loop because you've, uh, I mean, you presented it, but that's your, your latest venture, right? It, it, there hasn't that's been anything between Viz AI and, and Half Loop? No, no, no. And it's sort of transition almost. I stopped one day and started Half Loop the next. Yeah, so that's crazy. So I work on this now. And that was, and some of it came out of Viz in that we were building algorithms based on hundreds of thousands of CT scans from patients from all over the world. And, you know, you build these algos, you get it to market, then it goes back into the hospital and it treats the patient. And we had lots of discussions about who owns that data. And it's a really interesting concept because actually when you go to a hospital and you have an EMR note written or an X-ray taken, none of it belongs to you. It should. You're the patient. But the copyright belongs to the hospital or to the data storage providers who've signed a deal with the hospital to store it in the cloud. Um, and then we just thought, that's really interesting. And how can we... And my brother was working on decentralized technology. So... In parallel, while I was doing this, my brother was working on a distributed ledger technology company called IOTA that he was the CTO of. So 
distributed technology is the other word is blockchain and people know of it as crypto or bitcoin ethereum and you know we've had good news about it bad news about it and it goes up and down but the underlying technology is just a way of storing data not in a single central server but in a decentralized fashion so you have copies of that data everywhere so it's sort of unbreakable it's immutable there's provenance you know where it's come from you can track who's done what on that data chain and the technology is actually really interesting and it's I think in this world where we're entering up AI, uh, blockchain is going to have a really big piece to play because it can't all be stored. All this power can't be stored with a few people or with a few big tech companies. So he'd been working on that and he's doing a really good job of that. But we were talking about what we could do in, in healthcare because he wasn't, his, his work was uh, at government level working on blockchain infrastructure for the European Union, um, that kind of sort of setup, but not really in healthcare. And then a few things happened. I, my mother-in-law had a hip replacement, which was doing okay, but her other hip started hurting. And she went to see a colleague of mine who said, yeah, your other hip needs to be done, but your first hip is awful and it needs to be changed out. When was it done? Where was it done? And finding that record, it was in the hospital in the middle of England. There is no record. You know, We know roughly what it could be from recognize it on an image, but we don't know what that device actually is. Um, which is crazy because we keep all our records in an implant book, like a sticker or QR code from the box that the implant came in. You might scan it into an EMR record, but it never escapes beyond that. It's really hard to for a patient to know what they've got, you know, if they're in another hospital, another country. Um, so that was one point. Then there were a bunch of recalls that were happening in many devices. We've had it in pediatric orthopedics with spinal devices. We've had in orthopedics with metal, metal hips. There have been breast implants that have gone awry. The vaginal mesh made by Johnson Johnson is one of the biggest ones in the world, which has been recalled. And, and there's a lot of pushback from regulators saying we need much more intensive post-market data on these devices that go into patients. So all this is happening. We're like, why can't we build a system where we give patients data around their interventions, including their devices, and then allow them to carry that securely, safely, you know, decentralized, you know, they own it, but we can access it and they can, we can link them into their clinical teams, follow how they're doing, and then build a sort of system based around that. So that's what we decided to build with Half Loop. The other bit we're working on is like a reward system with the Dyson School of Design Engineering, so James Dyson School here at Imperial in London, where we want to give patients rewards for sharing their data. You say, okay, you tell us how you're doing, you know, what's your SRS 22 score, you know, six months down the line, but you'll get a point or a token or a reward or whatever you're going to call it in return, which... So the more data you share, the more rewards you get. And then we're working on that value of those rewards, like air miles or loyalty points. It could be that you swap it out for real life goods. And, and some families might need that, particularly in underserved communities or people with cost of living crises. But other interesting models are you can pay it forward. So you might accrue these rewards and then they're worth something, perhaps funded for by device companies but then you pay it forward to the, the scoliosis research society or the harms group or to a patient, you know, a patient association that's associated with that condition. That, that's an interesting model. Uh, or you pay something forward to someone in another country who has the same condition as you, but they're in a low to middle income country and they can't afford that treatment. So they we're looking at all these different kinds of models. I think it's, it's a different way of thinking about data, who owns it, how do you share it, what is it worth, and how do you make it more equitable? That, that, that's, that's what Half Loop is. It's a big story. But the essence is that we, you know, we're building something that allows us to 
know how our patients are doing in real time rather than waiting for them to come back every three to six months to work out how they are. Yeah. And, and so are you obviously like this AI, like you said, is a machine that now runs not itself, but it's, it's, it's huge. Where are you in that process with half loop? I mean, are, are, have you created enough that can be used uh, and, and it's in, it's in use or it's still sort of a little bit in the development process. It's probably always in the development process, but so is, yeah. So we're, yeah. we're about a year in and we're building up half. So we're building this platform with sort of bank level security scalable so that it can be used by millions of people at once without it breaking and that's the problem with building health tech is the more people get onto it the clunkier it becomes and often it breaks and we've had lots of failures in health tech because it's been built the wrong way so we've spent a year really building it and we're pretty much done we're about to start testing it with real people and patients um, and then working with the right groups of people so harms is one of them our, our sort of first big trial that we'll do in testing it out and we're talking to people like the FDA, regulators, about what they would want to see on a platform like this. So it's just making sure that we're building. So we built it with a bunch of patients involved, yeah. making sure that we're building something that they'd actually use and a bunch of clinicians involved. But we're at that point where we're about to start really testing it out rigorously. So we're about we're about a year in. I mean, this we started in, at the end of 2015. We didn't really get it into patients till 2018 or 19 because it took two, three years to build and then go through regulation before you're allowed to give it to patients. I mean, it's still, it's still pretty quick. Like if you look at, uh, you know, a medical device, it's like a 10-year process. So the fact that you can do something like that in three or four years is remarkable. It is, but it, that timeline's getting shorter, but yeah. it only gets shorter if you know all the things you need to do. Yeah. <laughs> because you might build this piece of software and think, yeah, we can do it, but actually you need to go through compliance. You need to go, sometimes go through regulation, depending on what you're claiming. You need to build a cybersecurity around it. it can't, you know, there's a bunch of things. So... You know, a, a year is a, a fast time point to get to a working product that you can start to test. So fingers crossed we can. Yeah. Oh, it's a, so I'm curious, you know, you talked about how Medtronic became a little bit of your, I don't want to say a lifeline because you guys had funding, but in, in, our, in terms of getting it in hospitals, which makes sense because they, like you mentioned, they want, they're in the business of helping care for stroke, but they also have a you know, they, they have a vested interest in it because they're trying to sell something. So who is the, who is that uh, for you with, with half loop? Is that the EMR companies? Is that the medical device companies who want to have their stuff tracked? Where, where do you get that level of um, uh, integration into a hospital system? Yeah. So this is a slightly different model to say this, this is very much a, a sales. Well, we start off as selling to providers, right? So we're not trying to replace the radiologist, but actually, if you've got 200 scans being done within the healthcare network, we're just prioritizing the ones that need to be dealt with immediately. Um, but that's still a very hard sale. So till you have your value to someone else who's paying for it eventually, and in this case, it was a device company like Medtronic, that helps you sell, but also you can sort of co-market with them. You can share resources. Here, we've got a, in the hopefully we've got a multi-site. You've got patients, you've got clinicians and providers, you've got producers like... Um, the device companies you've also got regulators and payers there's a whole bunch of people that can be part of it we've just focused totally on patients we'll never charge patients but someone has to pay for eventually when we first set it up we're like okay the people who really need this data are, are people who want post-market data which are the device companies for keeping up to date with their regulatory requirements and burden but to get to that point you need to have enough data to be able to give to them so you still have to build it so at some point someone has to fund the data going in 
so that, you know at the moment the, the model is like a very low fee model for the providers who use it because just to implement keep it running to allow uh, you know clinicians or nurse practitioners or whatever to communicate with their with their patients but the funding will has to come from a device company or from a reimbursement code eventually saying actually these devices need to be tracked we need to know how they're doing in real time so actually it's important that this data is kept and given to patients and then tracked and monitored. So we don't know yet. And this is the great thing about startup. You have no idea who's going to pay for it. Yeah, yeah. So you have to just explore all of it and see where you, where you land. Um, it's not like Google. You can't say, well, I've got this thing and you pay $10 a month to use it. It doesn't quite work like that. You have to build a value event. So what, who's a valuable to? But the focus has to be on what's the end result. What, why are we doing this? What was the problem you're solving? So here it's 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 a patient patients are outside the hospital that we we have no idea how they're doing. They have no idea how they're doing. That's that's the problem we're trying to solve. Yeah, you're not you you have to focus on the end result and what you're doing, not how the where the funding's coming from. Because if you do that, you'll probably drive yourself crazy, and, you, and you'll change the 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 product that you're trying to create in order to placate somebody when in fact you have a goal in mind. Completely, and yeah. I think. What happens when people get involved? So funding, for example, you get venture capital funding. You know, they want you to get to a product that works that someone will pay for very quickly. And you've got to try and find the right funding partners who understand you're building something bigger than that. You're not just trying to make some money as quick as possible because that, that is not the way this will be useful in the long term to anyone. It has to right. be something that's useful. And eventually someone says, actually, it's worth funding in some way. So it's sustainable. So that's, that's what we're working towards. And the same thing happened with Viz, to be honest, because... The total amount of funding for Viz has been over a quarter of a billion dollars. I mean, it's 250 plus million. It's a ridiculous amount of money. But someone has to believe in you that at some point, someone will pay for it. <laughs> you know, Even if three years down the line, you haven't got it into a patient yet, you're doing something that's focused on the end goal, which is you're trying to get the right patient to the right person as quickly as possible and bypass all the, the blockages in, in healthcare, right? So... You have to keep going knowing that there is there are people breathing on your neck saying, when's this ever going to make money? But actually, that can't be the focus. Otherwise, yeah. that's, what I think, where most people end up finding, working on the wrong things. They think, I need to do this, and then it'll make money, and I'll be out. It doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. We started for this in the end of 2015. We're still on out. We're not, we're not going to be out for a long time, because if you build something that really does work, uh, it'll just carry on growing. It might not grow it. You might not get the end result you think, which is I'll make it, sell it, get out. It doesn't work like that. It actually, if it works and does well, it will continue to carry on being useful. Yeah, well, I mean, you've grown it from one pathology to 12. So it's That's definitely, it. you know, it's a, the use is, is pretty obvious. Yeah. Um, I want to talk, because I, I know we're up a little bit against time, but you and I uh, didn't start talking at the at IPOS or at Harms about Viz or Half Loop really. We talked about AI in general as a as a thought and how it as a concept can be used both in healthcare, but especially in orthopedic surgery. Can you share some of those thoughts? Obviously outside of what we've just been talking about with, yeah. with something like Half Loop, but how how are you foreseeing the utility of AI within um, within orthopedic surgery, specifically within pediatric orthopedics, but but just in general orthopedics. So I, th I think there are many different levels. I think the first generation of so the, at the moment we're talking about large language models. You know, ingesting a huge amount of data, predicting the next thing that happens, predicting the next sentence that's going to come out of your mouth, which is what a LLM does. 
I think at the moment that it's evolving so fast that even what I say now won't be true to mind. That's something I talked about two days ago. It's been blown out of the water and I'll tell you in a second why. So I think the first level in something like pediatric orthopedics is the simple routine admin stuff, right? So it's booking patients in to the right slots in your outpatient clinics. It's scheduling them for surgery. It's chatbots that are the first interface for when a patient comes to your service. So if someone's coming to see me, the bus, you know, if, if we had 100 untriage patients coming to a pediatric orthopedic clinic, 90 to 95% of them have really nothing wrong with them, they have normal variants you know, flat feet, not knees, whatever. We really, if you want to get build a specialist practice, that stuff should be dealt with at, a, at arm's length. And I think that's where chatbots, uh, visual aids, so inc- including something that's chatting to you, which already exists now, you know, just saying, what are your symptoms? You just free text, you talk, it finds the signal and then says, okay, this is your most likely diagnosis. But on top of that, adding video imaging, such as you can take a picture of your deformity or take a video of you walking, your kid walking, and it will see the signals and it will work out this is the issue and then recommend what the next step is. I think that is not very far away. It already exists now. It's a question of how we deploy it in, in pediatrics. The next step up is decision-making and particularly for more complex things like making a, a surgical decision. That could be many things from history examination to imaging to interaction with families, a bunch of things before you make a decision. And that's us ingesting information, using our experience in our small language model in our head and putting it together. If we could put all of us together, say if we put all of Harm's group together and it was one single surgeon, they would make, well, they may not make a decision because there's too many decisions. <laughs> yeah, you've been in <laughs> a meeting. But, but they might make a much more informed decision if they have access to all that information at once. So I think that's the next step where it's going. But then I think the final step is actually having a co-pilot. I mean, we're almost there, a co-pilot that sits alongside you and helps you take away all the things, the difficult tasks that you have to do every day that you struggle with, but also just enhances your ability to do everything. And I'd love to have a co-pilot that sits alongside me in clinic. And as I watch a family walk in, uh, this thing is talking in my ear, telling me, oh, this kid came to see you six months ago. By the way, they went on a holiday to Hawaii last week. You should ask them about it and see how it went and then ask how his knee is doing. You know, How much ever information I keep here, I'll never be able to keep that information from right. patient to patient in, in, a, in, a, in a 50 patient clinic. That, that technology is already there. The stuff that's coming now, I don't know if you've seen OpenAI, I've just released their text to video. Um, no. They released it yesterday. They've just previewed it. You should look it up. It's called Sora, S-O-R-A. You can put any prompt in. You can say a woman, I mean, the first one is a woman walking through the streets of Tokyo in the rain. And the the fidelity, the way it's, it builds it within about a minute, it's perfect. You can't tell the difference between that video and something real. It's It's completely fake. And that has implications and quite scary implications of what's coming particularly with your election coming up, it has a lot of implications <laughs> and our elections. Yeah. Um, but that kind of technology, with, with, so it's not just large language, it's large vision models, um, where you, how we train our residents, how we keep up to date in our surgical techniques. Um, you know, VR, it's been a bit overhyped and, you know, Apple Vision Pro, blah, blah, blah. But this technology is on the verge of just flipping to something extraordinary. I, I can't even predict what's coming next. Honestly, every day I... 
I have a look at what's come out and you think, oh, something else is disappearing. <laughs> yeah. So we're in the precipice. We, it's already the cuts out of the bag. I don't think we can put it back in. The question is, how do, what do we do about it now? You know, when people start saying, let's build a project that does X, we should be thinking of a completely different way of doing it. There's no point me doing I don't know, a research project on a technique now. I should be thinking about how I can put everyone I know who does the same technique and has the same patient. I can put all that information together and spit something out and see a pattern that I couldn't see before. That sort of like what Dan Perry's doing with large multi-center things, do you think? And but but scalable no, that's, that's using data. AI. That's the collection of data. The question is what do you do with that data? Yeah, yeah. I think this is a d- distinction we need to make is you know, we, we can pull together and get lots of data. We already see thousands and millions of patients, but what is the value of that data and then what can you do with it? And how do you put it all together and see signals in it that you couldn't see before? That's the next step that we haven't, I think we're still away in healthcare generally, but we should be thinking about that next step. Yeah. You know, how can we diagnose every child out there with, with displays of the hip or scoliosis without ever, ever having to see them? We should be able to do that. We should be able to send a video to a unknown server somewhere that we build of their child running around, playing soccer, swimming, whatever. And it says, oh, that kid's got scoliosis. It just picks out the kid with scoliosis. It needs to be seen and, and, and if an x-ray taken if needed. But actually, it's measured the scoliosis already because it can see it. Similar that, to what VizAI did. Except we're using the surface mapping of the back and saying there's there's some asymmetry there in the real world, and you should be able to do it as a yeah. kid walks past you in the, in the supermarket, right? Yeah, it's a different level of scale, I think. But so it's interesting because because we talked about I don't know if you remember this discussion. We mentioned that with our own kids, that discussion about what their future careers might be has changed over time. That that you had said, and I, I've told my kids as well that you know something that is. Uh, that, that probably you need to do something that's relatively niche because if you're trying to do a generalist, you just pointed out that so much of sort of general routine, almost the non-operative in the U.S., we have non-operative folks who do a lot of the screening of pigeon towing and toe walking and things like that, that that may go away. But do you feel that in 10, 15 years that pediatric orthopedic surgeons will still be doing the majority of surgery? How far away are we from taking the surgical component, the, the complexities of surgery, the layering of age and comorbidities and whatnot out of the surgeon's control um, and giving it to, to a you know, computer system. Yeah, I, I don't think we're far away from it. In the same way that, I mean, healthcare is always slow. And this, you know, how long did it take to go to an EMR from paper records or right. from an X-ray to a digital radiograph, right? It takes time, but I don't think we're that far away. I, I just think... There's a lot of subjectivity in what we do, the way we record information, the way we talk to patients. And what these models, these huge models are good at is looking at objective measures within all that subjective language. It's like taking, dumping a bunch of data into it and it finds the signals or dumping all our, what we've talked about today. And I can tell you if we'd recorded this and put it through many of the LLMs I've seen, it could summarize everything in, in how many ever words you wanted, you know, doing doing 100 words, doing 500 words, do it in a thousand words, but do it as if you were explaining it to a seven-year-old. However good we are, we can't do that. And we can't do that fast enough. So that's the stuff we, you know, we shouldn't be spending our time concentrating on the small things. We should be looking for the big things. I think this, this, this is going to come sooner, sooner than we think. And 
the thing I, I say now to I say to my trainees, I say to everyone I meet, is we're we're really at the start of a different inflection point in the history of humanity, and it's for me. Uh, maybe we may have talked about this before, but it's like uh, realizing that copper wire conducts electricity, and you realize electricity is a thing. But till someone builds a light bulb, there is no light, right? You know that this is a dangerous thing that if you touch, oh, it's like a plane. It's a dangerous thing that you take off at the end; it can crash and kill everyone. But till you can control it and build the real application on top of it. And we are doing the wrong things with this new AI. We think it's a new form of Google. Like we search. So I've seen people use ChatGPT, for example, or Gemini, any of the others. People use it as a new way of searching the internet. You know, tell me where should I go on holiday or uh, where are the best restaurants in London. That's not what it's for. It's, it's a generative AI. It creates new ways of thinking and new connections that you never thought about before. And this experiment I've done with a few people now is... If I asked you, what's your favorite book from childhood? Like, tell me your favorite book of all time. Watership Down. Watership Down, right. Okay, so Rich Adams. Tell me what's your favorite character in Watership Down? Uh, Hazel. Hazel. And why Hazel? Uh, I think that he was a humble, selfless leader. Okay. Yeah. And have you, do you ever think about, do you ever think about and think, even when you've grown up, you think about what you've learned as a kid when you read that and that inspired you? Like, oh, that's... I, I think I did because I because I read it to my kids a while back, but I'd have to think a little bit further. Do you remember the first line from it? I don't. Okay, so <laughs> so if I did the same thing, if I shall we do it now? I'm going to do it now because I've got yeah. ten minutes and then I've got to go. I'm going to yeah. do it. And the reason I'm doing this, and I'm going to do this on ChatGPT, but we can do this on any LLM. I'm going to do it on my phone, and you should pick it up. Let's see what it does. Uh, ChatGPT, can you tell me about Watership Down? What is the best character in Watership Down and why? It's an adventurous tale about a group of rabbits who leave their doomed warren in search of a new home, facing various dangers and challenges along the way. The story is notable for its rich mythology, exploration of themes such as survival, leadership, and freedom, and its portrayal of the natural world. Picking the best character in Watership Down can be subjective and depends on what qualities you value. However, Hazel stands out to many readers. He's the main protagonist and a natural leader who guides his group through perilous situations with wisdom and courage. His intelligence, compassion, and resourcefulness make him a respected and beloved character among readers and his fellow rabbits alike. What draws you to Watership Down? Are you exploring it for its adventure, the characters, or perhaps the themes it covers? Hey, I've got a follow-up question. What's the first sentence of Watership Down? The first sentence of Watership Down is, the primroses were over. It's a simple yet evocative line that sets the stage for the novel, hinting at the passage of time and the changing of seasons, which is a subtle backdrop to the larger tale of adventure and survival that unfolds. Is there anything else you'd like to know about the book? Yeah, I've got one final question. So I became a spinal, a pediatric spinal surgeon. Can you tell me what Watership Down teaches me as a pediatric spinal surgeon, how it could help me in my career. Congratulations on becoming a pediatric spinal surgeon. That's an incredible achievement. Watership Down, while a tale about rabbits, offers valuable insights that can resonate with anyone, including medical professionals like yourself. Here are a few themes and lessons from the book that might relate to your career. One, leadership and decision-making. 
as a surgeon, you're often in a position where you have to make Okay, I'm, I'm going to stop with that. But yeah. uh, in fact, it's already yeah. done leadership and decision making, empathy and compassion, resilience and perseverance, teamwork, innovation, right? Yeah. Now, it doesn't matter how good you are, you will get to a certain level where you could kind of remember it. There's no way you'll remember the first line. You won't be able to remember the entire book, which I'm sure it does. But this generative thing where it's not finding connections between things, because the argument always has been if you've got access to the entire internet, then you can you'll definitely know what the first line of worship down is. You know what their favorite So someone's written about it somewhere. But no one has ever written about being a pediatric spinal surgeon and what they've learned for worship down. But in seconds, it can find all the characters and put it together and make it personal to you. That is a different level of computing. It's a different era we've entered that people haven't realized. And I think that's what we need to be thinking about. What can we do with this rather than is this a new way of just getting information? It's not. It's a new way of thinking about new ideas. So when we think about research projects, we think about how to educate our trainees. It's not just, you know, tell me 10 causes of this or tell me how to treat this fracture. It's how can we look at this in a completely different way? given the information that we already have. So that's, that's my take on it. Sorry, I, I had to do that with you. Just oh, no, show. it was awesome. Uh, you, we, we talked about that a little bit, uh, I think, at the Harms meeting, and, and yeah. I hadn't seen it in person. I'm curious. So, so last, last question then. So, and you, you alluded to it just now, but how do you use sort of these common generative AI tools on a daily basis? Because that was a fascinating exercise, but like for a day-to-day thing, how are you actually implementing that? So for, uh, on a personal level, I use it to learn things that I didn't know anything about. So, I mean, like two days ago, I wanted to understand quantum theory. I, and it came up in some conversation. So I talked to, to an LLM on the way home and just asked it to explain it to me like I was a 15-year-old. So not quite left school yet. And that's the first time I've actually truly understood quantum and string theory, to be honest. <laughs> I used it with my kids. Um, so my Seven-year-old son, Zach, asked me what clouds are, and I gave him some sort of bullshit answer. And I thought, actually, don't make it up. And I asked it to explain it and explained it beautifully, comparing it to candy floss and all the different times. Actually, I, for the first time, I've learned the difference between cirrus, cumulus, and nimbus properly. And I'm saying why it looks like that. It's like, oh, interesting. In day-to-day life, I use it. So normally I have meetings, whether it's in person or online. I'll use it to, I'll say, look, I'm going to record this and summarize and send a summary to both of us. And it'll give... Uh, there are multiple new ways of not only summarizing, but telling you what the next action points are, but also setting the agenda for the next time you're going to meet that person. This stuff is taking away me having to worry about recording information. So it's acting as my co-pilot. In healthcare, I haven't really used it that much. I've used it occasionally to talk to patients who speak another language rather than waiting for a language line or a translator uh, and almost like real-time translation. But I haven't really, I'm starting to think about what could we do. And actually with Halfflug, we're thinking about this data as we collect data, say working with Harms Group, what can we do with that data as it comes in? So one thing we're building, for example, is a patient journal where they can keep a record of how they're doing. It's for them only. They can share it around the time of their visits um, to hospital, but they can take photos of their back, of their scar, of their wound. But actually when you get that at scale from 100, 1,000, 2,000, 20,000 patients, you can start seeing things that you never saw before. You can put a feeder into that, anonymized into a model and say, what pattern is this showing amongst a thousand patients who are recovering from scoliosis, right? And that, I think that's what we need to be thinking about, not measuring each person on a one-to-one basis, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally does. That's amazing. That's what, that's what we're working on, what could generative AI do in our practice. But yeah. I think how is linked to that. So that's, that's the stuff we're exploring at the moment. 
Well, Manoj, I know you need to go. I could so literally sorry. sit here for hours and talk. I mean, I, I'm so no, sorry. Russia. So enjoy this. Um, and, and you are uh, truly uh, unique in your understanding and ability to implement this. And I've uh, learned so much through you. So thank you. Great to see you again. I think maybe we'll see each other at Posner. I'm sure. Yes, know. absolutely. Posner will be great. I look forward to it. Um, so nice to see you. And thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you for taking the time. Well. Absolutely. You as well. And uh, safe travels to Singapore, my friend. Thank you so much, buddy. Speaking very soon. Have a good day. Yeah, time. absolutely. Thank you.